The idea of Black culture that is vibrant and that is sort of reasserting itself. And the filmmakers are very careful about that to let us know it. And there's also the aspect of the film, particularly as it's ending, the idea of education for African-Americans rising up, seeing yourself, seeing the culture that you're a part of. Those are words from film historian Donald Vogel on Hal Ashby's 1970 film, The Landlord. Same faces of movies in the podcast for each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney. Today we're talking about The Landlord. So quick synopsis of the film is Elgar is a wealthy young man who leaves his family and state in Long Island to become a landlord in Brooklyn and ends up falling in love. Tagline for the film is Watch the Landlord Get His. The film stars Bo Bridges as Elgar. Lee Grant as Mrs. Enders, Diana Sands as Fanny, and Pearl Bailey as Marge. It's written by Bill Gunn, based on the book by Kristen Hunter, cinematography by Gordon Willis, directed by Hal Ashby, edited by William A. Sawyer and Edward Boschuka, and music by Al Cooper. Today, my guest is Martin Kessler, and you might recognize him from our previous episode during my John Cassavetes month on opening night. So I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. If you haven't seen that film, this is a great chance. Go and re- you know, visit a film for the first time and get to know a bit more about Martin and his background. But first and foremost, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Uh, I really Thank appreciate it. I-, I was so glad that you wanted to come back and that you this is the film that you picked. Uh, we're talking about The Landlord today, and it's one of my favorite Ashby films, and it's a film that really stuck with me after the first time I watched it. But before we get into The Landlord, as you're a second-time guest, I'd love for you to recommend two to three films that you've watched in the recent weeks, months, that you think that the listeners should carve out time and seek out. Uh, Sure. A movie event I just watched the other night, I'd seen it before, but I just felt like throwing it on, was uh, Louie Bluey, the documentary by Terry Zwagoff about the musician. Mm -hmm. Uh, Louis Armstrong, not that Louis Armstrong, but... Mm-hmm. Bluey, <laughs> he's he's a blues musician and um, just a really interesting character. And I don't know how familiar people might be with Terry Zwigoff's stuff, but he's the director who did Ghost World and Crumb. And mm-hmm. It's it's only an hour long, and uh, it's it's a really great That's watch. Fun. That's a good one. Okay. Um, trying to think. <laughs> Honestly, mostly lately, I've just been playing a lot of the Resident Evil remakes on PlayStation. That's a good but, recommendation too. Remakes? Um, they're remakes of the the original yeah, games. Yeah, they're basically. I mean, they really are remakes where they just change the story and change the puzzles and change the gameplay. And because some of oh. those games are like you know from the nineties, they they look mm-hmm. kinda, they're great, but they're dated. So these new ones yeah. are. I kind of put it off and then they just came up with the fourth one this year. So I was like, oh, all right, okay. I'm going to go play the remakes for two, three, and four. And mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's things about them that are, uh, some things are worse than the original. Some things are better, like they're real remakes, but it's just been really fun for me to kind of dive into that. <laughs> That's cool. I used to play the, the, the third one a lot. Oh yeah. Nemesis. <laughs> yeah. I, I only say that because, uh, I had a younger, well, I not had, I had a younger brother, but he was much younger then and he was too afraid to play the game. So he'd asked me to play it so he could watch it. He was just like, I want to watch, but I can't sit by myself and watch it because, you know, Nemesis like pop out, <laughs> jump scared. 
uh, it's a throwback. I remember Nemesis being really scary, and in in the remake, I'm like, oh, this is so like '90s in kind of a bad way. I was yeah, like, you're not <laughs> scary anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's fun. The other night, I watched uh, Lethal Weapon Two, which I'm mm, guessing okay. most people are familiar mm-hmm. with, but. Uh, you know, Joss Ackland, the actor, recently passed away. So I thought this was a mm-hmm. good one to go and revisit because he's a um, fantastic villain in it, diplomatic immunity. And yeah. uh, I think it, it's probably <laughs> my favorite Lethal Weapon movie just because they throw Joe Pesci into the mix and he's really good with Danny Glover. And uh, at the end, the knock, knock, knock it on heaven's door, all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, <laughs> I guess those are my recommendations. I'm sorry. They're I mean, not... Those are good. Hey, listen, even if it's like you've seen it before, maybe it's time to revisit. Like, I haven't seen Lethal Weapon in so long, but like, we used to have it on all the time. It was always on TV, and then we we had like the VHS. What's funny is um, when you watch it now, just listen for whenever Mel Gibson's accent slips. It's really kind oh, yeah? of strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good. It's been a while. I've definitely seen all of them, and then probably the first two obviously the most yeah i rewatched the fourth one a lot because i i thought Jet Li was the coolest so mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that was a big rewatch for me i think yeah yeah maybe the third one's my least favorite just because there's not really a strong villain in that one okay that's like the internal affairs one renee russo is good in it though so yeah is that the one is it chris rock is in that one no he's, he's in the fourth one. Oh, he's in the fourth one okay yeah Jet Li, we watched a lot. My mom was obsessed with Jet Li, so I'm always, uh, my one Jet Li recommendation, or my biggest one, is always to get people to watch Black Mask. Oh, yeah. Black Mask is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I like Fist of Legend a lot. That's that's probably mm. my favorite of his. Yeah. Yeah. That was a time. It was always yeah. been a blockbuster getting Jet Li movies. <laughs> there were so many Jet Li movies. So many. Man, that's, yeah, that's it's, a good time. There was that whole, like, <laughs> backlog of films that he had done that hadn't made it over here yet so when he you know he was already a star so when he blew up Mm -hmm. over here it was like all those films just kind of came out at once so it was great there was just like a hundred gently movies you could watch right we don't get that anymore unfortunately so but no those are good those are good throwback recommendations i love that i'm all for that in terms of the landlord do you recall the first time you would have watched this film and uh, had you seen any other Hal Ashby at that point or what was the reason why you sought out this film? I saw this one kind of late after I'd seen all the other 70s Hal Ashby movies. I was surprised mm-hmm. when I came across it because I was like, oh, there's a there's a 1970s Hal Ashby film I haven't seen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I started off with like Harold and Maude and being there and kind of working my through and this one, for whatever reason, just kind of fell in between the cracks and it was a little bit more obscure so um i i didn't even know it existed until like after i'd watched pretty much everything else by al ashby but i mean this is one of my favorites by him but Mm -hmm. also it it feels like it stands a little bit apart from the rest of his films like you know if you watch the last detail and coming home and bound for glory Mm -hmm. like those all feel very much like they're coming from one kind of authorial voice so this one feels a little bit different in that regard which i mean one reason why i think it's kind of cool to talk about this in the context of gordon willis is because you know this one like yeah it's directed by hal ashby but i'm not sure if i think of it as hal ashby film in the way that i think of like his later films as being hal ashby movies and Mm -hmm. part of that might be i mean the screenplay by bill gunn who's a great 
filmmaker in his own right who um, yeah i mean I, I think everybody knows ganja and hess now but i really liked personal problems and did you see when they showed it at the light box no like uh, shot on vhs or videotape but like it's it's really really cool and like his work with kathleen collins i think is really great like losing ground mm-hmm. you know you can see a lot of his personality i think coming through in this film there's also a novel which i haven't actually read you have somebody like that whose whose voice I think comes through very strongly in the film, and mm-hmm. you have a couple interesting creative people involved with this film in the performances, in the cinematography that I think just create a really unique film. To me, this almost feels like like it, it's a stupid label, but it's like the first real like seventies movie <laughs> in some yeah. ways, and in the subjects it tackles, in the way it looks. I mean, you know, since we're talking about Gordon Willis, and also. You know, I should mention Michael Chapman was yeah. the camera, oper- op- camera operator mm-hmm. on this, who, you know, later shot Last Detail and Taxi mm-hmm. Driver and a bunch of stuff. But, like, if you think about 70s movies, like, the, you know, those are the two biggest or mm-hmm. two of the biggest cinematographer names from that decade. And it's like, you know, I think part of this film kind of defines how the rest of the decade is going to look. Yeah. In some ways, you know, like, you take a look at it and it's a 1970 film and it looks like a 70s movie. Like, oh, the, oh yeah. you know, this clearly isn't like a 1960s movie. It's not even a 1969 movie. It's got to be a 70s movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly that. Know. No, I mean, I I'm glad that you said that because um, I mean, for anyone who is not listening, these in order. But I, I would have said this before. The reason why I wanted to do Gordon Willis, because this is my second uh, cinematographer so far. Reason why is because when I think of the 70s and American cinema, I always automatically think of Gordon Willis before even other certain directors from that era. I think of Gordon Willis and how he basically imprinted the look of the 70s. And like he does that in this film because this is obviously shot probably 69. uh, But it's like, this is the 70s and this is what the 70s (laughs) is going to look like for the next 10 years. And I love it for that. But it's just so, I don't know, I just love the look of this film and i agree like you see some of hal ashby in it but i think there's more of gordon willis in it and i'm sure we'll talk about that through the discussion but yeah i I think i'm similar this is what would have been one of the later ashby films that i would have watched i would pretty sure i watched almost everything else before this and i was in bay street video in toronto and they have an ashby section and i was looking through I was like, the landlord? How come I miss this one? <laughs> like, I haven't heard anything about this, so I rented it. I was like, oh, is Bo Bridges in this? And I was like, I cannot believe no one's talking about this movie. Yeah, Like, it just blew my mind. So it's one, and I immediately bought bought the Blu-ray <laughs> right after. Yeah, it looks it looks great on that uh, Kino mm-hmm. Lorber Blu-ray. Yeah, shout out Kino. Uh, you kind of chatted a little bit about... Gordon Willis, but what's your relationship to his films? Like, when did you start really noticing his name and, you know, his imprint on cinema? I'm trying to think where where I first became aware of him. I mean, he's such a big name that, like, yeah, I, I'm not sure where the first time I would have heard it mm-hmm. said. But, um, I mean, like, the, you know, the Godfather films are so famous, the look of them, the chiaroscuro. Yeah. Like, I remember that being taught in university and you know, yeah. of course, Annie Hall in Manhattan, like, you know, the, the look of those films is famous, famous. Yeah. I'm not, 
I'm not sure actually where I first that's fair it came across uh Gordon Willis but like also just the way he shoots New York I really love yeah I think like the landlord you know this is a little bit before the Woody Allen movies but like it's a great New York movie Mm -hmm. and I sort of think of New York as being like maybe the most cinematic city in the world especially in this time period oh yeah there's some scenes like I love uh the sequence where Bo Bridges and Marky Bay are walking after the party and they're kind of talking. Yes. And it's it's like really late at night, turning into mm-hmm. early morning, and you get you get like the lights bouncing off the wet ground, and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of it just feels like it's natural uh city lights that are lighting them. And it's so dark, but you know, it's an image that really pops at the same time. You know, like it, it looks incredible. And just, you know, some of the scenes, like even on the sidewalks where you just see all the old businesses and how it looked in the 70s, I, I think are so interesting to look at. I, I feel exactly the same where I love everything that he shoots in films, but I love his romance scenes the most. I think those are always what stick out to me. And the one that you're talking about is definitely one of my favorite sequences so when they're you know walking and you're kind of faintly seeing them in the background, but they're still clear enough and you see it in almost depending on what the story calls for but a lot of his works well you'll have that you have it in annie hall like that pier scene when they're talking that's beautiful and then even in i i recently talked about clute and one of my favorite scenes in that is between jane fonda and donna sutherland where they're at like a fruit market and that shot very much like this is so it's just very versatile but he makes new york even though it looks pretty dirty and kind of grimy and gross but it's, it's also beautiful. very beautiful where <laughs> i'm just like yeah i'd live there i don't care if there's dirt everywhere and i love how he um he can create an image that looks naturalistic and then kind of bring mm-hmm. you into this place that's a little bit more stylized like you know you have the the sex scene where it's all backlit by this white light mm-hmm. so everyone's kind of in silhouette or i mean there's that scene where bo bridge's character is kind of drunk and he's talking with uh dana sands and the red light comes on and it's like that red yeah. gel sort of look where, the, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's like monochromatic. And of course, mentioning Michael Chapman being the camera operator on this, like that's the exact look that you have in uh, Taxi Driver later or mm-hmm. other films <laughs> kind of going for that red gel look. And I feel like, you know, there's some people like um, Nicholas Winding Refn's chasing that 70s look <laughs> even today yeah. uh, with the red gels and just... The lighting mixed with the compositions. A lot of the compositions in this are also really yeah. tight, which um, I, I like actually. Like there's always stuff in the foreground and it can feel a little mm-hmm. bit kind of um, maybe not claustrophobic, but it feels like, you know, tight compositions. And that's even where some of the humor comes from. Like I'm thinking of that scene where Bo Bridges is in his underwear dancing in front of the TV with Nixon on it. And it, yeah. it's like, tight it just the the framing makes it really funny where you have this like ass wiggling next to Nixon's face you know but like a lot of the shots too like the scene where he's having dinner with his parents and you see like the hands of the servants coming into frame like I I think it Mm -hmm. works really well how it sort of obscures certain things and highlights others uh those kind of tighter compositions I love the framing in all of his films and this one too I, I think this one with the framing it does lend to the comedy and as opposed to uh his other films i do want to shout out as you've been saying michael chapman because he's another great one 
And I mentioned in uh, other episodes too, all the great films he shot, but he also shot one of my favorite 90s movies, which is Space Jam. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Which is so (laughs) funny to me where I was like, you know what? Good for you. That's why it's so great. (laughs) (laughs) I always wonder, like, you you have these, like, great, great cinematographers who work on stuff today that, you know, it's like 90% green screen i'm like i wonder I what that's like like what do you what does yanis kaminsky like do with some of the, i don't know it's yeah this this film is just well we'll get into it into it we've already started talking about it so i might as well continue on it uh right. one of the things that i noticed on this watch and i probably noticed it before but it really stuck out this time because i was you know watching this through the lens of gordon willis specifically was a lot of the stuff involving Elgar is very documentary-like. The way he's shot and the way he's framed when he's speaking to people, it looks like he's being shot as though he's like a talking head in a documentary, but we know he's talking to someone off screen, like a friend or whatnot. And it really stuck out to me the reason behind that. And we get a lot of those scenes of Elgar just kind of talking to someone off screen or he's talking to the audience and... There's quite a few scenes where he's being taught a lesson of some sorts and he goes into the literal classroom and he's standing there kind of just being told that, hey, you really don't know, you know, shit at this point. So you need to sit and listen. How do you feel about that choice, that stylistic choice of shooting Elgar that way and that kind of documentary feel? Because I love it. I've read other things of people thinking it's maybe a little heavy handed. I don't necessarily agree, but I don't know how you feel about it. I, I like it. And uh, with all respect due to Bo Bridges, especially at this age, he's just got that perfect, stupid, baby face, <laughs> man child, naive look that yeah. like you can just cut to his face and he's he's not even reacting he's just like staring and it's a punchline you know what i mean like it's so (laughs) perfect in this movie and like ah, this character um like there's definitely been moments like since i saw this film where i'm like "Ah, like don't be like algar like just telling myself not to be like that that character yeah no i I think it works and partly it's it's just his face makes those close-ups work i think it's that exactly because there aren't that many close-ups in this film because a lot of it were done in medium shot or we're looking at them from afar uh depending on the scene but when we do get close-ups it's usually because elgar is getting his ass handed to him or it's like an actual serious conversation so yeah like that scene where they're um they're they're using that allegory about like if you have a mole on your face and uh it's just cutting from close-up to close-up and you you know and that's a sequence where it's serious uh and it's it's trying to punctuate that by showing people's faces their reactions and mm-hmm. you know I, I think it like it saves those types of close-ups for when it wants to have more of an impact it doesn't want to it doesn't want to overdo the serious stuff like i you know there's a lot of laughing in this movie what when it does get serious you know it's a total gut punch so i think it doesn't want to overuse those techniques because it want to make it, it wants to make them impactful and you know i'm not sure how much of that's ashby's editor brain thinking or yeah. you know who, whose decision it is but like you know it's it's very impactful when the film decides to stop being funny 
and, and there's still a mix all throughout, even when it does get very serious. Even towards yep. the end, there's you still get that relief. And I think that's where Ashby really comes in to this because he's very good at mixing the two. And you never feel this is a hard film to kind of feel like trash after watching it. Like there's some really dark yeah. moments, but you don't feel like trash after you've watched it. <laughs> or at least I, I didn't. Mean, like talking about the close-ups, one that really sticks in my mind is when Louis Gossett Jr.'s chasing him with the axe and he goes yeah. up the stairs and like most of his face is kind of in shadow and just his eyes are standing out. Like it's, you know, that's a really powerful image. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that whole sequence is pretty pretty intense. And yeah, I usually kind of dread that that part coming up because it is so intense and it's just his performance is really like he he's not in like I think like runtime wise he's not in a bunch of the movie but like mm-hmm. like that scene where he finds out that the child isn't his like his reaction where he's kind of like putting his arms above his head like yeah it's really sad he's he's really really good in this um and this is this is a pretty early role for him i think i think mostly of uh louis gossett jr from his, his 80s movies onward like um uh, like uh officer and a gentleman mm-hmm. iron eagles <laughs> probably some others punisher yeah. movie um okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure there's others but uh anyway yeah no i i think this is one of the earliest films i've seen him in but he's he's really really good in it um, oh yeah I mean, it's hard not to remember that scene Yeah, uh, in this film. It's great the way that Willis shoots the actors because he really allows them to shine and yeah. highlights what needs to be highlighted in that scene. And um, I was reading about the film and I'll read a quick-ish quote from John Patterson, who's writing for The Guardian, and he says, Willis has always considered himself a co-author, telling the story entirely in visual terms that cohere with the film's larger narrative aims. And here he is indispensable to the film's effect. Every shadow thrown or blaze of light enriches the film's subtext and moves the movie along a little bit more nimbly to its inevitable conclusion, where Algar realizes he's just a clueless white tourist at a Black experience and doesn't belong. Which I agree with. Uh, I think it's very much... The way he's shooting all these characters is very much moving the story along. And I don't know, we can talk about it, how you feel about Elgar's character and whether you sympathize with him or not. And it's it's hard with a character like that because I think I simp- I do sympathize with him, but it's also like... You also kind of want to smack him upside the head. I know, you really do <laughs> just because you're just like... Sense into him. At some um, point when he says he's 29, I was like, mm, you're old enough to not be acting this way, <laughs> you know. But I feel like even today you could find like 29-year-olds who think that they're being, that their good intentions are enough that they don't have to know better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just what you're saying also about like how he, how Gordon Willis drives the story forward. Like, it's interesting when they have the scenes that are upstate with Elgar and his mm-hmm. family like those are shot in a really kind of brightly lit, evenly mm-hmm. lit way. And then in all the scenes in in New York, they're very dark and shadowy and gloomy. And like, it creates such a strong juxtaposition that that's, I mean, that's also part of the storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I guess like 
Elgar's, I, I think he's like sympathetic to a point, but he's also somebody who makes everyone's life basically worse in this movie. <laughs> like, I mean, that, that's yeah. to me, one of the most interesting things about the movie is there are, there are a lot of films that try to tackle racism and they try to like mm-hmm. wrap it up in this neat little bow and like, you know, that's it folks. We solved racism. Yeah. <laughs> and one, one thing I think is really great about this film is that it doesn't try to do that. It, it leaves things in a place that it's worse than when it started. You know, it's, it yeah. makes everything messier. Um, like my friend Marcus Pin said that there's not going to be a film that's, that deals with race in a perfect way because it's a messy subject. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's going to have their own experiences, their own ways that they relate to this thing. So I, I like that the film just kind of lets this character mess up and mess everything up and make everything worse. And, you know, even when he's trying to do, the well-intentioned thing, even that can make things worse. So I, yeah. I think about that a lot. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why this film stands out in my mind. You know, I mean, there's a couple other films, I think, tackle similar subjects uh, or mm-hmm. similar subject in a way that's comparable. Like I, one of my favorite films is um, Melvin Van Peebles' Story of a Three-Day Pass. And Yeah. Oh, my God. You know, I love it. Uh, <laughs> That, that that's a really amazing film. And I know he, he talked about, uh, Van Peebles talked about kind of his reaction to films like um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, where, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's like Sidney Poitier in that he's he's so upstanding and so good of a person that like, you know, <laughs> her, you know, the, the Brandy girl's white parents have to approve of him, you know, and like, yeah. You know, his point is that people are flawed and people are messy and relationships can be messy and you know, that should be reflected in film as much as anything else. Not to like crap on Sydney Poitier or anything, obviously. No, but yeah, like, no, I know. You know, you it's, it's more interesting to me to see films that deal with people who are flawed and who have mistakes and flaws that uh, collide with each other. And it's interesting that this film also kind of highlights Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as, as sort of a counterpoint. Like, you know, there's the Lee Grant character, his mother, this, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, you know they're wealthy, they're liberal, but they're they're sort of like they're racist. But they act like yeah. we're not like that racist. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're, they're sort of, you know. So it's funny when she's like, "We all saw guess who's coming to dinner together." Like you know, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's interesting to tackle that too. Like you think of there's movies like Green Book where, like, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to the South and it's all racist, and you know it's it's not racist anymore because like that cop that pulled us over. He just uh, wanted to help us with our taillight. We're back in New York where people are based, you know, like I, I think like yeah. it's, you know, there, there are easy targets to pick on when you're talking about racism. And I, I like that the film doesn't just pick easy targets and it does uh, deal with a lot of different subjects that are kind of interwoven. You know, there's gentrification, there's interracial relationships, there's people growing up mixed race, there's mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these subjects kind of interconnect in a way that i think the film is happy to dig into that mess and put it up on screen without really pretending that there's a simple answer for it that's what i I think stands out the most is that you know he's not the savior in the end because that's not realistic and it's also not super realistic to have him be this character be the major major villain because i do think he tries to a point where he's comfortable trying to do the best but I think his trajectory makes sense in this movie. And it's just so, yeah. I think it's just so honest about, and it it lends itself because it's not, we have 
Willis shooting this his way. We have Ashby directing this his way. But then both the writers, the source material and the screenwriter are Black who are able to lend that voice. Because when I think about even now, it's very rare, like as someone who is biracial, to see a character say on screen they're biracial and then talk about, hey, this is how my parents got together. Because even though it shouldn't be a question of, you know, how did your parents meet? But it's the thing, like when I was a kid in the 90s, they'd be like, how'd your parents meet? Where did they meet? I was like, well, in Canada, like, I don't know what you wanted, what what we wanted to say. Like, they think that's, you know, my dad traveled from Italy to go to the country and take my mom out type of deal. It's like, no, this is just how it is for certain people. And I, it's so honest. I was kind of shocked when I saw it because I was like, this is the 70s. I wasn't expecting it to be so honest. So it's just great overall. And I think it just lends to the fact that we're like, how is this not <laughs> more spoken about? But there is a, a thing that you talked about in terms of the lighting, because we get those contrasts of when he's in Brooklyn and in his apartment, then versus his parents, where it's super like flushed out with white lights and everything's bright and they're all in white clothing or something super bright. But what I love the most about this movie in terms of the lighting is something that shouldn't be hard to achieve but seems to still be hard to achieve for certain direct cinematographers is like lighting people with darker skin yeah. like i don't think anyone in this film is washed out unless they need to be for that scene like a lot of the times you could see the difference in lighting and that's the way it should be no one should be lit the same way if you have bow bridges is incredibly pale <laughs> versus someone who's not you can't light them the same way and you can see that Willis took the time to study that because everyone's clearly seen. So, yeah. I mean, I I know like there was a film and a small job on where uh, there was a white actress and they were looking at maybe casting a, a black leading man and the cinematographer. Mm-hmm. He threatened to quit <laughs> because he said like it, it would be too hard to light for both of them. You know, so like I know some people yeah. still don't want to deal with that. It's rare enough to see films from this period that light people with darker skin correctly but i know it's uh-huh. like technically it can also be tricky when you have people with two very different skin tones on screen at the same time and i think this film never never botches that you know it, it's an no. easy thing to you know you, there are films that are bad examples of that and um usually like the way things are lit and exposed it, the bias is usually towards the the paler actor <laughs> that's just uh-huh you know how it's how it's been so you have a lot of actors or actresses who just kind of like disappear into the shadows or you know you just see their like eyes and teeth kind of popping out and like that that's fairly common especially at this time period when the film stock yeah you know you didn't necessarily have a lot of dynamic range to to work with i mean now you look at movies everyone just looks great (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) now i agree especially again on this watch looking at and i was like how did he manage to get them both so beautifully lit within the same frame and sometimes it has to do with blocking i have to assume uh just because you could see the way the light's hitting from whatever angle but it's just so to me i'm like this is someone who's actually very good at his craft who's taken the time like i can't imagine that's a fluke right it's someone who's taken the time to be like we have to do and this. to make it look naturalistic to make it look effortless mm-hmm. like, like oh they didn't do any lighting here they just flicked on the lights in the apartment and yeah. rolled the camera you know it looks like that right? but 
it does you start to break break down how some of it was lit and you can tell like oh you know he has diana sands standing kind of near the uh near the light here and it's darkly lit and like you know there's a lot of thought put into it but it's done in a way that where it feels invisible it doesn't feel overly stylized or like it's trying to draw your attention to it no yeah i agree and if we even talk about new york and specifically the apartment complexes in park slope which is brooklyn yeah and we kind of talked about the way new york looks on film in general but the way it looks in this film just even like the shots of elgar walking up the street with the the toilet in hand and all kind of the litter and the 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 shops yeah it's just great yeah and all the apartments and you're like these look run down but they still look so beautiful to look at and it's like like on camera it's just it's visual detail yeah exactly cinematic (laughs) right sometimes i feel like it's like it's so lucky for people shooting in New York to just be like, I can really just kind of flick on a camera and it looks interesting as opposed yeah. to somewhere like Toronto where you're like, okay, I have to actively I know, find like, a place um, that looks good. There's a, there's a YouTuber I like called Karen Britchick who does this series called uh, what people are wearing in New York. I don't know if you've ever mm. watched this. No. Like, during lockdown, I was just watching like a bunch of these videos because I'm like, you know, it's outdoors. It's in New York. It just looks great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, people wearing interesting stuff uh, I know, so yeah. I was just watching a bunch of that and it's with a little probably like cell phone camera but mm-hmm. you know, it just looks it looks interesting it looks great and it's just like you see every walk of life yeah. in this film and in general like every time i'm in new york i think it's just also part of my canadian brain where i'm just so fascinated by everyone i was like wow everyone seems so like I, unique I know. here like people dress interesting you see interesting yeah stuff like it's <laughs> like i was staying in um in jamaica queens and like i had fun going mm-hmm. to all the little like delis and then just taking the uh the train into brooklyn or manhattan for the film festival and like i loved even just like how old some of the infrastructure is yeah like, how well designed it is i don't know like it's it's an amazing city all my friends in new york are like if you lived here you get sick of it really fast <laughs> but yeah I, like, I feel like it's it's better than toronto i i oh I my liked God. it more than toronto so <laughs> There's very little that's lesser than Toronto. And I don't even want to trash on Toronto, but like I kind of have to just because, wow, it's a it's an interesting city in the way that it's not interesting <laughs> at all. There's um, have you seen that documentary Los Angeles plays itself? Yeah, I thought it'd be really mm-hmm. fun to do uh, Toronto never plays itself and just show yeah. like <laughs> Toronto, um, all the all the times it stands in for other cities oh yeah even sort of funny i brought up resident evil earlier but like the resident evil movies you, you mm-hmm. need a place that looks like generic american city you shoot in toronto like <laughs> i know oh, you, you need God. a place that looks like generic suburbs uh toronto suburbs you need a, yep. a place that looks like a, a 90s rundown city that's got an evil corporation under the surface shooting slippery <laughs> like I don't know. Canada's yeah. great for those kinds of locations, I guess. It really is. Like, there's very little places that are very distinct within the yeah. country. And that's just... I mean, it was funny. Like, uh, when I met Edgar Wright, he was joking about uh, Scott Pilgrim when he was like, oh, yeah, we're we're considering shooting in New York and making it look like Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I appreciate these jokes. There was, um, there, there was an episode of uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds this season where they go back in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Captain Kirk goes like, uh, we're, you know, we're clearly in 
early 21st century New York. And she goes, it's Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a great joke. Whereas like New York really has its own character and it it becomes its own kind of side character in this film. And then you get, you know, those scenes there, but then the scenes with his family and which mostly take place in the home. There's a couple outdoor shots on their, you know, estate. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be Long Island or. I'm not sure. Definitely like upstate wealthy kind of removed from the city. Oh, very much. And I'm also just like, how, what's the commute like for him to get into the city? (laughs) Because he seems to be going back and forth. (laughs) I'm 29 years old and I've run away from home. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I was also like, I mean, now, especially with uh, the economy, people would be like, yeah, I'm not leaving that house. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have money to live anywhere else. But I find it so interesting the way that house is lit and the way everyone is like, because sometimes I feel like I, because I've never seen this in the cinema. I'd love to see it in the cinema, but I feel like those scenes must be kind of like a little bit blinding to the eye and it's done purposefully that way because there's a couple shots where it's not that it's New York shots are super dark, but the other shots in in the family house is so bright. White gold tablecloth it's it's almost blown mm-hmm. out when you look at it on the blu-ray like it's it's um you know all the windows are brightly lit no i think you're probably right and especially when you go from one location to the other it's i think it's meant to be jarring <laughs> but yeah yeah i think yeah. so it's just because you know it's just a mirror you know the artifice of the family and i like how they are quote unquote liberals but they're not actually they're liberal to the probably the Republicans in their area, but at the end of the day, they yeah. still want to be, you know, a certain way. Even that scene where Elgar is talking about the double NAACP, and they just yeah. are going off and back about how he calls them the N-word. I, I, I find that scene funny, just because it is. It's so ridiculous how serious they are. And in the setting, and they have like the black, you know, servants in the background. It's just so hilarious to see that people were living that way. Because we don't, at least I don't really think of that when I think of the 70s. So the way it was shot was so melodramatic. Yeah. I, I love it. For me, one of the funniest scenes, it's when his mother, Lee Grant, goes to try to find him and she meets up with uh, Pearl Bailey, playing the mm-hmm. large character who's kind of like the authoritative figure of the apartment or i, I don't yeah. know how you didn't say that but and then just seeing them kind of like act off each other it's so good and seeing how out of place the grant's character is it's so funny mm-hmm. to me and then they're getting drunk and <laughs> i know in the special features on the blu-ray uh lee grant talked about how like i, I guess the, the whole thing of her putting the ham hawk in her purse <laughs> pro yeah. bailey tried to jump in and, and steal that laugh and hell ashby had to be like no no that's her that's her yeah. laugh. but you know it's so much fun watching them play off of each other in that sequence um it's really funny and there's also like we haven't talked that much about the editing but there's some like very jarring edits too in this like i think mm-hmm. it's right in the middle of that sequence there's like a pretty hard cut to a completely different location and it's when bull bridges is telling uh marky bay's character that he loves her and like or, well, he doesn't okay, tell her, he yeah. her, but like, but it's just like smack in the middle of this other scene, and then it just cuts back. There, mm-hmm. there were a couple cuts, like I, I'm not completely sure what the rationale is for like why they cut there, other than just to kind of keep you from settling in. 
But I always wondered what the deal was with the wedding at the very, very beginning. <clears throat> I know. And, I know. And Bo Bridges yeah. explained that, like, oh, it's just Hal Ashby's wedding and he wanted to make it personal. I was like, okay. Oh. I, I just never, yeah, it's it's an actual wedding. But it's like one shot at the very beginning. It almost feels like like there should be a title that comes up that it's from this production mm. company or something. I'm like, how is this connected to the rest of the film? I never, <laughs> I never knew that until I watched the special features on the Blu-ray. No. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I was like, every time I see it, I'm like, is this just trying to situate the characters and how there's going to be a family? I was like, maybe it's a wedding that takes part in Elgar's family <laughs> that we're not just seeing. And then it's like, it's never mentioned again. So uh <laughs> That's the 70s for you. Just being like, yeah, why not? I'm just going to throw in the shot. Who cares? Right at the beginning. There's one or two moments in this movie where I'm like, ah, it's the 70s, whatever. Yeah. Sometimes that's like certain eras where I'll be like, okay, I'll, I'm just not going to question it. You guys are doing your thing. And especially with like Hal Ashby, I, I was reading a bit of you know, some interviews with Gordon Willis and they were talking about his relationships with certain directors, some that we've already mentioned. He always says that Woody Allen is probably one of his favorites. I know he didn't love working with Coppola. <laughs> I don't think they got along very well. And he didn't love working with Ashby either. He was just like, yeah, that guy was just on drugs the whole time. It was yep. too frustrating for me. <laughs> he's like, he's a great director, great storyteller. But he was just high out of his mind the whole time. <laughs> I think it stressed Gordon Willis out. But they seem to still do great work together. So. I mean, obviously, Hal Ashby's run through the 70s was pretty amazing, but that kind of turned into a problem mm -hmm. in the 80s. Like, I know, and then there was like some studio interference where they would take some of his films away. And then on top of that, he was like dying for the, the latter part of his career. So, yeah, um, you know, like, unfortunately, he, he died quite young. Yeah. And kind of on a, a down note, like, not that eight million ways to die is is bad, but it, it feels like he was. A it doesn't feel like a final film. Yeah. No, like um, you know, there's people like Robert Altman. You sort of think of as having like a high in the seventies, <laughs> and then he kind of, you know, he's still working, but he's doing a lot of stuff that's sort of under the radar, or yeah, or or bad. <laughs> Some of it is is actually <laughs> bad, you know, but you know, still a lot of interesting work and a lot of great stuff. And then he kind of comes mm -hmm. back in the nineties, you know, he kind of like wonder if Hal Ashby, if he had lived, if it might have been a little bit like that, if he might have had some kind of great 90s era revival. I don't know. I like to think so. Yeah. I think that he just left us with so many. It's a small filmography and there's a couple uh, not so great ones, but in the grand scheme of things, it, you know, within film community, he's talked about, but people don't really talk about his work in, in enough, in my opinion, because he just had a really great voice. And it's kind of weird to me. I don't know if it's weird to me that they didn't work together more. Maybe it just didn't work out and, you know, they didn't vibe well. But like, as you said at the top, like there is a very distinct look that's so different yeah. from the rest of his stuff from there. It just doesn't feel like like the ones that were shot by Haskell Wexler. Like it feels mm -hmm. different. I know like, I mean, I know Bill Gunn apparently tried to write another film for Hashby to direct and that fell apart for some other reason. Mm. You know, so I don't know. I mean, sometimes things just don't work out or people's yeah. personalities collide. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't always know. But, you know, this again, this one just has a different feel than, you know, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, oh, yeah. Coming Home, Bound for Glory, being there. There's one I'm missing, but <laughs> from, from the 70s. Shampoo. Shampoo. I always forget shampoo. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
but you know, those all feel like of a piece in some way. And yeah, this one just kind of has its own feel to it. I think, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. I think the cinematography is a big part of it. And I think definitely the the writing is a big part of it. I agree. Are there any parts of Gordon Willis's, you know, work on the film that we haven't chatted about before we start final words on performances? I think we covered it pretty well. I mean, yeah. I have a film actually on muted playing while we're talking. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I feel like we, we gave it its due. So yeah, we've, we've been talking about performances, but if we want to spend a little bit of time chatting about specific performances that stood out to you, let's do it. I, I mean, I love Lee Grant. <laughs> I think she's so funny. She's so great in this. She's got a very, Elaine May sensibility to her where she's so quick-witted and she could be saying the most offensive thing in this and you're like you know what I'm kind of on your side <laughs> because you're so <laughs> funny and she's just such a great performer and I, I love and I like Bo Bridges too but you know yeah. as you said like he does have that kind of dumb boy there's that one scene where um like he's just in a dashiki and then yeah. <laughs> it was so funny to me when he's doing the interview for the yeah. Blu-ray, he's wearing the same dashiki. Is he? <laughs> like, <laughs> you just put him in that and it's a joke. Like <laughs> just the yeah. look on his face and everything. Like it works so well for this movie. Yeah. Um, I think he's really good. Like Bo Bridges, I know he's not, I, I mean, he's probably in lots of stuff, but he's not as famous as his brother really, but he's, yeah. he's really good too. And I, I feel like he has a, he has a certain quality that, that works really well in this movie. Very um, much. I think Diana Sands is amazing. Um, yes she, she's really really i think like she's kind of the you know if she's not the heart of the movie then she's definitely like the integrity of the movie mm-hmm. um really amazing performer who tragically died uh, not that long after this was made she she had cancer and she passed away you know when she was quite young i mean she was in uh raisin in the sun with uh sydney poitier which um yes okay. it, it was sort of funny to yeah. see like her kind of laying there uh, you know with the um the poster or the you know photograph of like Sidney Poitier, like this aspirational photograph mm-hmm. kind of behind her in this film. Like it's just sort of a weird like divergence or just kind of interesting. It almost makes me think of like uh, you know, when you have uh Marilyn Monroe looking at like a Marilyn Monroe photo in the Misfits or something, you know. Yeah. It, it, it somehow it just makes it real where like, you know, you have her in this film kind of playing a character who's very grounded next to this. Mm-hmm. photograph of an actor she played off against in an earlier movie she's also she's in one of my favorite uh outer limits episodes okay <laughs> uh, she, she's good in that but like you know I, I think she was an amazing actress and there's not a lot of her on film because i think she was mostly a theater actress mm-hmm. um she was supposed to be in claudine the uh, john barry movie she kind of came up at the same time as like james earl jones and she mm-hmm. was sick so uh, you know, I mean, she was dying, so she recommended Diane Carroll for that movie. And obviously, she's mm. great in Claudine. But, you know, I sort of feel like Diana Sands, if she had lived, she would have been, you know, she would have been one of those actresses who, like, had an Oscar or, like, she was that kind yeah. of caliber of performer. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's it's tragic that she she passed away so young. But, um, yeah. You know, and, like, it's too bad that, like, you know, I've seen photographs of, like, oh, you know, this is her her theatrical performances, Joan of Arc and like, ah, oh, like I really would have loved to have seen that. And I kind of wish, you know, more of those theatrical performances that she had done were recorded on film too, because it just feels like, I know, uh, right. You know, <laughs> but um, she's amazing. Marky Bay. She's so cute in this movie. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I yeah. She's, she's like 
just adorable. Um, she gives a really good performance. And I think like after this, she kind of slipped a little bit more into like um, exploitation films. Like she's in uh, Sugar uh-huh. Hill, which is kind of a, a famous one, <laughs> horror exploitation yeah. kind of a movie. Um, and I think like, I don't know if she just wasn't getting the kind of opportunities she wanted in films. So I think she mostly retired from movies and went and opened like a like a murder mystery cruise line thing and <laughs> made a pile of money off of that. So wow. <laughs> that's cool, I guess. Okay. But, I was not expecting uh, that. <laughs> but she's she's good in The Landlord. I, I think she's really good. Mm-hmm. You know, she's and she's, she's just got that like sweet face that you can kind of understand why Bo Bridges would fall for her and yeah. playing th- that character with the sort of complexity that that uh, she warrants. Um, Louis Gossett Jr., we already mentioned. Yeah, Pearl Bailey's great. I'm trying to think if there's somebody we're missing. Uh, is there anyone I didn't mention? Mm. Oh, the, uh, Professor Dubois, Mel Stewart's also pretty good in this. Oh movie. yeah, I, I think like his, you know, his. Well, see, children, there's some things we can't teach. Like yeah, there's um, everyone gets a pretty great standout moment in this movie. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's anyone I I think gives like a a bad performance or even like a subpar performance. I think everyone's pretty. Yeah, um, even like Elgar's family members when they're on screen, which is very minimal, but they're still good. They're still funny. You know, his sister is funny. I, I think one thing that's really great about this film is even like small characters, it feels like they have some layer of complexity or some depth. Like nobody's a, a one dimensional character like his father, mm-hmm. you know, might seem like that. But, the, you know, you have that moment at the party where the guy shows up in blackface and just like the look on the father's yeah. face. You know, oh like he's God. like the only one who seems to like actually care about the that. Like, you know, so like little things like that. I feel like all these characters feel really three dimensional, and you know, it doesn't take much to just add an extra layer and flesh them out a little bit, and it makes everything feel more authentic and more real and more mm-hmm. relatable. Yeah, it's it's great. All the characters are great. All the performances are great. That's that's an interesting scene that you brought up too. I forgot to bring it up because uh, I think it's his it's his. Uh, Elgar's sister's fiance. Fiance, yeah. Yeah. And they have that scene where I guess she's not Shirley Temple, but looks like Shirley Temple. And they (laughs) kiss. And you're just like, so jarring to see, you know, someone kissing someone with black face. And then when the dads look on this face, that was very, I just thought that was a great moment because you have all these ideas about the father. And not saying that he's a progressive guy in any sense. But he was the only one who fully reacted to this and being like, um, what possessed you to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Without even having to say it, it was all over his face to be like, what made you come well, here dressed like that? I mean, <laughs> you get the sense, like maybe the other characters are like, they just don't want to disrupt things. They don't want to yeah, say anything. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if he was the only one who cares or the only one who was just like willing to <laughs> react yeah. to have like, a, <laughs> a, you know, an open reaction to it. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's an interesting moment. I think it's a mix of both. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> I guess my final words on it would be that, as you said earlier, it's like there's no film that's ever from a director who's white, black or any race. It's going to be difficult to tackle race on film because there's a lot of nuances there but i think this son does a great job at tackling this character's story and relation to race mm-hmm. and that's all you can really ask for with a film like this and i think it does it really well and i hope that it gets some sort of all of a sudden it's like this huge cult film that people are it, it seeking really out talked about more yeah. i feel like it's it's just one of those films that's underseen or overlooked somehow and 
yeah, I, I don't know what would spark a revival, but it, I think it definitely deserves one. It, even just in terms of like Gordon Willis's filmography, let alone yeah. Hal Ashby, but just in terms of what he did on this film, it's very much worth watching. Well, I'm ready to move to the last segment of the show, um, which is end credits. We've been talking about Gordon Willis and his other films, but if someone's interested in film uh, cinematography and has heard of Gordon Willis and comes up to you and asks, hey, where should I start? I've never seen any film that Gordon Willis has shot, you know, pretending that that's the thing, you know, (laughs) it might be rare, but there could be. What film are you recommending and what's the reasoning behind that being the starter film. I mean, I guess Annie Hall is probably a good one to start with because it's just mm-hmm. like, what, why haven't you seen this yet? <laughs> or, yeah. or The Godfather, you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, all right. I'll, I'll pick a. I'll pick a unusual one. Uh, how about The Paper Chase? Because that movie's kind of okay. a little bit underrated, a little bit underseen. Mm-hmm. I, I have a friend. It's his favorite movie ever. So I, I feel like wow, okay. my duty to to bring it up, but. Uh, it's also a good-looking film that has um, a little bit more of a naturalistic look to it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you, you should watch Paper Chase. Well, there you go. <laughs> the first one who's brought that up, someone jokingly brought up the Money Pit. <laughs> but hey, Money Pit's a good-looking movie. Yeah, I, I got nothing bad to say about the Money Pit. I mean, even, they're all great. I don't know what his what his last films were but i feel like even even like the later stuff like i think he shot godfather part three also right yeah i'm not I'm that not was one of his this. very last ones yeah, yeah. and he but, did I mean, two more you know, after that. that that one looks great too <laughs> so um, yeah i mean oh, yeah. yeah devil's he own did malice, malice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then he did presumed innocent which is good i mean that's how i feel i kind of i mean i've said it in previous episodes but i kind of cheated i went to roots i was like my one recommendation would be Manhattan to give you a sense of what, how he shoots black and white because he does it really well. Stardust Memories would also be a great one, but I think, come on, if you haven't seen any, I'm going to tell you to watch Manhattan first before you get to Stardust Memories. And then the other one would be The Godfather because I'm just like, you kind of just have to watch that you because just to. you got to sit through all the boring weddings and you got to watch <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it's like you just have to do it. Like, from there, that gives you everything that he is, and then you you have so many other great films to watch. But yeah, that's why I love covering cinematographers because it's just like a wealth of films and yeah. different stories. But then you get that that look that kind of runs throughout. That it's just so beautiful. So yeah, I think those are great starter films. Second question is Double Bill. Okay. So obviously you can pick more than one, but if you're pairing this film with another one to create a double bill, what film films are you pairing it with and what's the thematic reasoning behind the pairing? I think this would make a good double bill with Melvin Van Peebles' Watermelon Man. I already mentioned mm-hmm. Story of the Treated Past, but I think Watermelon Man, that's another film that, you know, you start off laughing and, you know, it kind of turns into a gut punch uh, as you go along. And I think just the image in The Landlord of all the kids practicing karate uh, reminds me of the very end of Watermelon Man. <laughs> so it, uh-huh. it's about uh, a character who's um, a, a white bigot who just turns into a black man. <laughs> and um, it's it, it was a studio film that Melvin Van Peebles somehow got made and they wanted yeah. him to change the ending and he he didn't. And yeah, that, I, I think that would be a good double bill 
I think they came out right around the same time. So yeah, yeah, they're, they're both definitely tackling similar subjects and they're both funny, but uh, you know, they're also about something serious. Exactly that. That's a great pairing. I, I hadn't even thought about that. That's one I watched for this first time maybe a couple of years ago. It had been on my list for so long. And then I finally sat down. I think maybe I was avoiding it because I was like, I don't know if the humor is going to translate <laughs> to me. And then I was dying of laughter the whole time. I was like, this movie's so funny and so stupid, but so real at the same time. Where I was like, oh, this is like, some real shit but it's also hilarious I was like, that's uh, that skill and how you get that movie made i have no idea only in that time <laughs> in cinema could you get that movie made you could not do that now godfrey cambridge is so good in it and uh mm-hmm. Michelle parsons from bonnie and clyde's in it she's really good um apparently the studio wanted melvin van peebles to cast jack lemon and he's like the character's black oh. for like 90 percent of the movie i should yeah. cast a black actor <laughs> but <laughs> Oh, God, that would have been like too problematic. It's like, we don't need to cancel Jam- Jack Lemon. <laughs> can, can you imagine? It's like, um, what, what's that film that Shirley MacLaine did? Uh, My Geisha? Oh, I haven't seen that one. Where, where it's like, oh, just, just, just yeah. <laughs> ignore that one. <laughs> Move along. Yeah, where you're like, you know, different uh, time. Just ignore. Just forget it. it <laughs> the pairings that I thought of for this, I kind of just went in terms of like, the first one is 70s. It's 1970. Also, have just someone who's in a certain lifestyle who wants to break free from it for whatever reason. They're just kind of tired of it. Somewhat similar to Elgar. Uh, and that's Frank Perry's uh, Diary of a Mad Housewife. Oh, I think those really are two great. good 70s movies of just someone who's like, this is the lifestyle that's been expected of me, but I don't want to live this anymore. And it's just try to break free. So I thought those would be, I just also love that movie so much. I think a lot of, I think when you said that the landlord is like a precursor to all the great seventies, I agree. And I think Frank Perry is also up there with a lot of early Hashby, uh, Hal yeah. Hashby in terms of that. So that's one. And then the other one is a sixties film but it's a very new york and it's like a forbidden love story you know it's between two white people but uh the italians in this one are the the quote-unquote black people that's uh love with a proper stranger which is robert mulligan and it's natalie wood is the lead in it and she falls in love with the steam mcqueen right yeah who's for some reason cuss as an italian man (laughs) in it (laughs) he does a great job but Probably one of the least. He's like the Adam Driver of Italian men. He just does not look <laughs> Italian at all. But you're like, you know what? Well, I mean, it. when your last name's McQueen, I, I don't know about that. That's Where you're like, right. okay, I could see the New York part of you. I don't know about Italian, but it we'll all accept it. It's... Yeah. But it's it's like a good forbidden love story. And it has to do with, you know, she gets pregnant by him and they're trying to figure out how to handle it. And it gets a lot darker than I was even remotely expecting it to get for the 60s. There's some really dark scenes in it. And I think they kind of mirror this, uh, the dark scenes in this film, but it's also not dark all the way through. There's lighter moments throughout. So I think those would be, Robert Mulligan's also a great director really who's not talking yeah, about. Yeah, he's kind of underrated. I was watching the other, um, I guess around Halloween, and I'm like, why don't more people talk about this? It's like, yeah, there's no... It should be a cult classic or something, but there's no cult. Like, where is everybody? (laughs) Um, 
Oh, right to start one. I, I've been like really over the last couple of years discovering his work and just been like, wow, he put out like a lot of great stuff. Yeah, and I it- mean, Summer 42, um, I guess, I mean, everyone's seen To Kill a Mockingbird. That's yeah, that's the like one that everyone's seen, but he's got a lot of really interesting stuff. I saw the same time next year, not that long ago either. And uh, I don't know if I really love that one, but it's it's interesting. It's good in it. Yeah, I think he just does a great job. Even like I saw inside Daisy Clover, I think would have been maybe at some point early this year or late last year. And that was good too, another Natalie Wood. Frank Perry, I think like he's he started having like a more of a rediscovery, more of a following now, just in the past couple of years. Like yeah. It sort of helped that some of those films are now available on uh, it's exactly that. The, the swimmer, obviously, and I mean, yeah. the two I've done podcasts on were The Swimmer and uh, David and Lisa, but it's mm-hmm. a bunch of really interesting movies. Yeah. I mean, I said it before on this show, but The Swimmer is my all-time favorite film. It's everything to me. So I am a huge Frank Perry champion, even though I do like Mommy Dearest, but I do think that because I'm such a Joan Crawford fan that I'm like, we need a, a true biopic. <laughs> Yeah. We don't need Mommy Dearest to be her legacy, but that's like that's a tangent. It's a little, it's a little <laughs> trashy, Mommy Dearest. <laughs> yeah, unfortunate. Good, fun film, but it's unfortunate yeah. that that's what people think of when they think of Joan Crawford. The, the Swimmer is such an interesting one, though, because it was like kind of taken away from Frank Perry, and then like mm-hmm. you know reshot by um, a Sid- Sidney Pollack, I think. Yeah. And then, like, I, I think, like, even Burt Lancaster directed a day, and then it got like, no. all it, it, like, it should be a complete disaster. <laughs> like, it and it comes out so good. Like, yeah, I don't know. It, it's always interesting to me films that are kind of chopped up and Frankenstein back together, or taken away, or mangled in some way. I, I'm always kind of fascinated by movies like that. I mean, it's not unlike our director here in this film and his later work. Yeah, I, I think things being couple chopped of his up. Later work, like, also, to, like, I think Hal Ashby. Because he had that editor background, he would shoot in a way sometimes that looked like it maybe didn't make sense. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he knew how he was going to edit them. But I think like if you're somebody working in a studio and you come in and look at what he's actually shot, you might be like, oh, no, this is a disaster. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and then like if you kick him off the project and then try to recut it, like, yeah, it's probably going to turn into something of a disaster. It's interesting to see many hats. Like as a last note, I again I've mentioned this in other episodes, but Gordon Willis has a background in acting, and I think that lends so well to the way he shoots the actors, and we see it in this movie. Yeah, here. yeah, that's a really good point. Um, well, that was the landlord, uh, Hal Ashby film, but beautifully shot by Gordon Willis. So, Martin, thank you so much again for joining me and chatting about a really, really great film. Thank you. I'm really glad to be back again, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Zillick.